welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. This is our inaugural episode. I'm so glad you're able to join us today. We're going to start out amidst the cornfields in the flattened landscape of Northwest Ohio. For those of you who've not been here before, islands aren't supposed to exist here. People usually think of them as exotic or remote. In any case, they're not usually what we Midwesterners consider home. That's why when I started searching for topics for folklore in Ohio, and the term Gertie's Island kept popping up, I knew I had to dig into this. Gertie's Island is situated within the Maumee River. It's a waterway that stretches all the way from Fort Wayne, Indiana to Toledo, Ohio, about 137 miles. The island itself is about a 40-acre parcel of land that slices the river. It's like an oval that has two sharp points on each end. If you're in a canoe heading downstream from the tiny hamlet of Florida, Ohio, it's about two miles. One of the most eloquent descriptions of the island that I've come across in my research was given by a historian named Henry Howe. This guy encountered the island on his journey to walk the state of Ohio in 1846. His goal was to record the state's history from original settlers, many of whom were still living on the original farmsteads. You might remember that in 1846, Ohio had only been a state for about 43 years. His aim at that time was to record accounts from direct first-hand sources. All his efforts would pay off about a year later when he would go back to his home of New Haven, Connecticut, and publish what's now known as the Historical Collections of Ohio. This would become a bestseller in Ohio for about the rest of the 19th century. So, back to Howe and his description of Gertie's Island. This is what he said, quote, It's a beautiful island of about 40 acres, with extremely dense growth of vegetation. Gertie's cabin and trading post were on the left side of the bank of the river, and it was said, when he was apprehensive of surprise, he would retire to the island as a tiger to his jungle, with the sense of almost absolute security from his pursuers. Unquote. So just who is this Gertie that Howe is referring to, who apparently he learned about from original settlers in the area? We'll attempt to answer that question as we take a trip for ourselves to Gertie's Island, and we'll ask her to release her secrets along the way. Legend goes that late at night, strange lights glow from the island. This is known to happen year-round, including in the dead of winter, when it's not reasonable to assume that campers or hunters or other people would be on the uninhabited place. Some claim that the lights sway as though being held by a human hand. Perhaps the light comes from a lantern held by one Simon Gertie, the island's supposed namesake, and the controversial, traitorous renegade from the post-revolutionary war era. Some people claim to have actually seen his ghost and that his figure glows brighter than the lantern he carries. Some say that Gertie is looking for the loot that he buried on the island somewhere, loot that he allegedly ransacked from fellow white settlers that he pillaged alongside Native American counterparts. Others say that Gertie is using the lantern to signal ghostly Native American spirits who hide in the brush along the bank. We will learn a great deal about this much maligned character from our nation's early history, and we'll learn that viewing Gertie as either a barbarous turncoat 
or a righteous vindicator depends on which side you're sitting. After starting some of this research, I decided I just had to go meet the island for myself. At least I wanted to get as close to the place as I could without renting a canoe. So one brisk, overcast December afternoon, I pulled my small SUV off the side of Old Highway 24. I could see the edge of the island through the trees on the bank. Before reaching the shoreline, however, I would have to cross the canal, which ran alongside the river's northern edge. I turned off my car to sit for a few moments. The pounding in my chest surprised me. My nervousness seemed so out of place. What's there to be afraid of, I thought to myself. Ghosts? Nah, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. I've got daylight on my side. And besides, something crazy happens, that would be a great segment on this podcast. Turns out, the real source of my fear was that I'd be caught trespassing. From the looks of the place, I was on private property. On the other side of the canal looked to be a small summer cottage that was shuttered for the off-season. I thought I probably shouldn't. What would I say if someone stopped me? Cars buzzed by as I sat debating with myself. I was glad they weren't stopping to ask me what I was up to. Truth be told, I wasn't quite sure myself. When my patience wore out, I stepped out onto the small car park. It needed a fresh layer of gravel with dead grass sprouting through. There was a large rickety metal bridge that spanned the canal whose water lay stagnant, algaed, and clogged with fallen timbers and other debris. The stillness of the space was punctuated only by an occasional vehicle that was zipping by on the two-lane highway. Once I made it across the bridge, I stood on the towpath, which is this man-made earthen straightaway that ran alongside the canal. It was once used by mules for pulling boats, and I stood there for a moment, staring down the path as far as I could see, maybe a mile or more. I considered another legend that I'd heard from a local man who often visited his grandmother's cottage there on the bank. Who knows, maybe the one I was trespassing on was the very same cottage. He had told me of the lantern-like lights that come from the island, of the reflection that they cast off the surface of the water when night falls. And he also recalled many nights sitting in his grandmother's kitchen late in the evening and hearing footfalls of someone running down the towpath toward them. He would often step out to meet the person and find, of course, nothing there but the heavy silence that I was now standing in. His grandmother had grown accustomed to these strange occurrences, so much so that she no longer paid attention to them. Just the natives, their restless spirits out for a run, was the story that he'd come to accept. He'd come to expect the lights, the footsteps as part and parcel of the place. Snowy winter nights were special nights for seeing the lights, he'd said. Their glow intensified in the flurry of precipitation. Unusual happenings seemed to occur with some regularity in that section along the northern edge of the Maumee. I spoke with another local man, Mr. Sean Carroll, about his own experience as a teenager. The following event occurred just a few miles downstream from Gertie's Island one summer afternoon in the early 90s. He claims to have witnessed a glowing orb about the size of a beach ball, hovering and moving seemingly of its own accord. I think it was like the last, last night of school in my eighth grade year, mm-hmm. and the girl that we went to school with was having a party out at the shelter house at uh, Wayne Park, 
Yeah. So me and the friend, he's a couple years older than me, we're walking to Wayne Park. We had come up through River Park, cut up onto the towpath. Well, we probably got into the woods, like maybe, I don't know, 40 yards or something. All of a sudden, I seen like a hanging board that was like emitting light. It looked really weird, and I, I didn't know if he seen it, seen it too. And I like, he like said something to me. He's like, you, he's like, what the hell is that? And I was like, well, I'm not sticking around to find out. So we turned around and looked the other way. Mm-hmm. We probably ran all the way up to like Frosty Boy. Oh wow! Around the corner and stopped, and kind of caught our breath. And, like we didn't know what the heck it was, and then we kind of gathered ourselves and then we just went home. So we never even went to the party. Because no, so, you were uh, so weirded out yeah, by the whole thing. Uh, wow. What are some of the stories that you've heard about Grady's Island? I've heard like people hearing voices there and things like that, with camp there and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Weird lights coming from that way. So, yeah. Okay. So Just stuff like that. Random things. You've never been to the island yourself? Not personally on it. Like I said, I've only like kind of looked at it from the shore. So, like I knew somebody who lived down that way. So we were they were riding our bikes along. We were like Grady's Island, you know. So. So now that we've heard a bit about the unexplained events behind the area, let's dig into the history. And as with most local legends, the known history is just as convoluted and surprising. The scope of the story is a bit unwieldy, so I'm going to try my best to boil it down to the most essential elements for you. Most people have identified Simon Gertie as the island's namesake. The island's true namesakes are his brothers, James and George, but we'll get into that more so later. A quick Google search of Simon Gertie reveals a plethora of essays, books, and various historians' opinions about his role in the Revolutionary War and in the post-Revolutionary War era in our nation's earliest history. His story is complicated, and for the most part, white settlers in this area came to view him as a villainous, traitorous barbarian who allied himself with the likes of the British and the Native American tribes. The white savage was a moniker that stuck with him, reflecting his image as a white man who identified with the native cause for freedom from oppression. Simon was born November 14, 1741, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to a couple of Irish immigrants that landed in the New World about 10 years prior. He was the second of four sons, Thomas, Simon, James, and George, and when Simon was about to turn nine, his father was killed in a duel. Now there's multiple accounts of the circumstances of this duel. Usually they're pretty dramatic and it's hard to know exactly what the truth is. Suffice to say that the death of his father led to the entry of his stepfather into his life, who also happened to be his father's half-brother. This man, a Mr. John Turner, had quite a story of his own. So if we think back to the mid-1700s there, the French and Indian War was heating up in and around Pennsylvania in those days, and young Simon Gertie and his family were living in the thickest part of the conflict. His stepfather moved the family to Fort Granville at the time, and he signed up for the local militia in hopes of being in a position to protect his family. John Turner was promoted to sergeant, a position that placed him third in command, And that decision would prove fateful as one August day in 1756, when the militia was out on patrol, a French captain and a group of about 100 Lenape warriors ambushed the fort 
plundered it, burned it to the ground. Turner was the highest-ranking officer left alive. Young Simon reportedly witnessed three grueling hours of his stepfather's torture before he was scalped. Death finally came at the blow of a tomahawk to the skull, all the while Simon, his mother, brothers, and newborn half-brother all watched, helpless to intervene. Simon would have been about 15 at the time. After this tragic scene, the surviving Gerties were taken prisoner by the Lenape and divided among other native tribes. Simon would be given to Chief Gayasuta of the Ohio Seneca. He would spend the next seven years in a village off the shore of Lake Erie, learning the ways and customs of his fellow Seneca tribesmen. He was trained in their methods of warfare, and he also fought battles alongside them against the British. He dressed in breechcloth and leggings, a deerskin shirt, and moccasins. So by all accounts, Simon, a white teenage prisoner of war, had assimilated and became accepted within the Seneca tribe. Perhaps his life would have continued in this way were it not for a British commander by the name of Henry Bouquet. He demanded a return of white captives held by the native tribes, and on October 17, 1764, Native leaders released Simon and about 200 other white captives in a prisoner exchange. At nearly 23 years old, Simon now spoke 11 tribal languages and identified with the native customs and causes. So the story goes that as the Revolutionary War was heating up, Simon had actually first sided with the revolutionary forces against the British. One can only guess at the mix of emotions and alliances that he must have felt at that complex moment in history. How did he understand his stepfather's torture and death by native hands? What explanation exists for that? How did he reconcile the loss of contact with his mother and his siblings? Was this his moment to seek justice for righteous retribution? Whatever reason, Simon signed up with the Americans seeking independence from the crown and quite frankly, stealing the land from the native population. One day, early in Simon's enlistment at Fort Pitt in 1778, one Major James Brenton asked him to help him find a horse that had run off the previous night. In their search, they came by a nearly abandoned Lenape village, the same tribe that had killed his stepfather and taken Simon prisoner. Following their discovery of the village, the revolutionaries plundered it. They allegedly tortured and killed women, children, and elderly folk who remained there. The expedition would later become known as the Squaw Campaign, an atrocity that the revolutionaries would later apologize for. The Lenape had been neutral in the war at that time. We can only guess about Simon's feelings on his role in this incident, on his having found the village, and on the violence that followed. Was the plundering just retribution for what his own family had lost to the Lenape so many years ago? Or was this just another example of tit-for-tat in a world whose power structure was not yet settled? Perhaps Simon came to view this native tribe with empathy, the kind of which only years of living as a native could provide. Perhaps he came to deeply regret his role in destroying the Lenape village, the tribe that had once upended his own life. Perhaps these complex forces contributed to his eventual decision to desert the American army. He would later travel to Coshocton, the capital of the Lenape, 
and pledged loyalty to them and their cause against the American invaders. Here, Simon would meet up with his brother James, who had been raised by the Shawnee. Together, they pledged war against their fellow white American settlers. I could go on at great length about the battles and many adventures that followed for the Gertie brothers. Simon and James would become known as traitorous, brutal turncoats who aided and abetted the British and Native tribes alike. And yet, confusingly, Simon was also known for saving the lives of American prisoners of war, purchasing their freedom at his own expense. Of course, he knew how it felt to be a prisoner of war. Perhaps this conflicting history reflects the conflict that may have resided in his own soul, himself born a white settler, orphaned at the hands of one native tribe, to be raised by another, then disillusioned by war crimes of his fellow American revolutionaries. And lastly, devoted to the native cause for freedom from oppression from the American invaders. But let's get back to the subject at hand, which is the island that would come to bear the Gertie name. Henry Howe, the historian we talked about earlier who wrote the historical collections of Ohio, recorded that Simon's youngest brother, George Gertie, was the original owner of the island trading post at the spot on the bank opposite Gertie's island. George had been held captive by the Delaware and later raised by them. Thomas Gertie, the eldest Gertie brother, had also been held captive by the Lenape but escaped after 40 days. We understand a lot less about Thomas, James, and George than we know about Simon. What we know of George, the first owner of the trading post across from Gertie's Island, is that he had once fought alongside American revolutionaries, rising to the rank of lieutenant in the Continental Army. That tenure would last only about a year, though. He, too, would desert and join the British forces in May 1779. He would marry a Delaware woman and reportedly live the life of a drunkard after the defeat of the British forces. Eventually, he would die in 1812 at a different trading post belonging to his brother James, near the present-day Fort Wayne, Indiana. After George's death, brother James Gertie was nearing 70 years in age. An article from the Napoleon Northwest Signal, dated August 13, 1965, states that James moved down the Maumee River and came to inhabit the island. The article explains that, quote, at the time, the island was somewhat more accessible, and he could wade over to it without a boat. Gertie then proceeded to unload his stock of paraphernalia, including colored blankets, various trinkets, paint for travel dances, and the well-known fire water which makes everything right. Indians stalked into the board cabin, putting their pelts on the counter and requesting the brightly colored objects on the shelves. Old age finally forced James Gertie home. His trading days were over. The site of this last post gave the name to the island as Gertie's Island, unquote. Now we know the true namesakes of Gertie's Island as George and James Gertie, although folklore has attributed the place to their more notorious brother Simon. Simon's reputation was larger than life, especially among the original white settlers who offered Henry Howe their own stories of the man. After interviewing dozens of local contemporaries, Howe described Simon Gertie as such, quote, Although trained in all his pursuits as an Indian, it is said to be a fact of susceptible proof that, 
Though his importunities, many prisoners were saved from death. His influence was great, and when he chose to be merciful, it was generally in his power to protect the imploring captive. His reputation was that of an honest man, and he fulfilled his engagements to the last cent. It is said he once sold his horse rather than to incur the odium of violating his promise. Unquote. In 1974, Simon would marry Catherine Mallott, a white woman who herself had been held captive by native tribes. At the defeat of the British forces, he would take up residence in Malden, current-day Windsor, Ontario, a stone's throw from the U.S. border in Detroit. The British government had bequeathed him land for his service and loyalty during the Revolutionary War. He died in February 1818, only a year after his brother James's death, James incidentally had also fled to Canada, Simon received full military honors at his burial. This much misunderstood man, born to Irish immigrants in the New World, was captured and raised by Native Americans. He would later fight for their cause, become labeled a traitor, and eventually exile himself to Canada when the British forces retreated. The native tribes of Ohio at that time were being systematically pushed out of their homelands to points farther west. The cause that Simon fought and devoted his life to would ultimately be lost to the greed and oppression of the American invaders. The Gertie's brothers' presence in the area, the island, and the trading post, which was positioned directly across from it, is undisputed. Whether Simon, the most notorious of the bunch, was ever on the island remains unclear. However, it's possible, even probable, that he was on the island at one time, given that brothers who owned the place. We know that Simon participated in the Battle of Fallen Timbers, the final battle of the Northwest Indian War that was waged in 1794. This battle happened only 35 miles downstream from Gertie's Island on the Maumee. Local legend has proclaimed that Simon's fabled spirit roams the island. Some say he's searching for buried loot that he pillaged from local white settlements. Others say he's hiding out from American revolutionaries seeking revenge for his crimes against them. Perhaps it's Simon's complicated reputation, his image as a renegade, and the hatred he inspired as a traitor that has created in him a worthy namesake for such a curious place. For, as you're about to discover, we're not finished with the odd story of this island. In my efforts to understand this enigmatic place, I've come across a wide range of people with their own unique connection to the location. Some have experienced strange and unexplained events. Some have descended from previous owners of the island. Some have been there, explored its overgrown wilderness, and have come upon objects of great wonder and consternation. One such person, Mr. David Johnson, shared his own remarkable experience from a visit about 40 years ago. David is a retired education professor and adventurer. At 75 years old, he now lives in Columbus, Ohio. I came upon his blog entry about his time at Gertie's Island with a fellow adventurer. I'll let him tell you his story in his own words. Yeah, because nothing made sense. Right. Nothing made sense. There was no connection to anything. Uh-huh. And you said you took a canoe to the island, is that right, to get there? Yes, the only way you can get out there was with a uh, canoe. 
Right. And you were able to find a place to kind of pull yourself up onto the island and... Yeah, we just went around, I think, I don't know why we took chose that way, maybe it was a stream or something, but we went, I remember we went down to the right, which was east, and then came around, just as we came around the tip, we saw a place where you could pull in, like a little covey light area, uh -huh. so we pulled in there and got out, and that's where we started walking from. Do you remember if it was really overgrown at that time, or was no, it... No, it was, well, you couldn't, when you first started walking... Weeds and grass were higher than your head. You couldn't see five feet in front of you. Wow. So you really had to whack your way through the, the grass and stuff, and then eventually it opened up. But we went for quite a ways where you couldn't even see anything. It was just totally overgrown. But from there, we just went, and the next thing we saw was the uh, the house that I think was 1920-ish or something in that era. But we didn't wander around anymore of the island. We just went straight from what would have been the northeast tip directly almost southwest. We didn't even know where we were going with that place. And we just kept going southwest, and I think it was when we finally saw our first house. So we didn't, we were disoriented really from the beginning because we didn't know where we were. Yeah. We knew we were running. You were just, we it was just a small island. It turns out it was a lot larger than we thought. But, yeah. Um, I think they said it's about 40 acres. About 40 acres, yeah. Yeah. So you were just blindly kind of exploring and yeah. came across these different things, and it got weirder as it went. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, no expectations of anything. I said that in the beginning, there, we, we knew it was an old house there in that old picture, but we certainly thought it wouldn't be there now because it's an old picture and it's an old house, from what you could tell. And the moment we set foot on that place and, and walked, it was like, okay, it's just a weeded over island, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's a house. That really caught us by just totally by surprise to even see a house. Mm -hmm. Then we got paranoid because we thought, we're trespassing here. If somebody lives here, they're going to be angry. Then we went up to the house to look on the house, and then you look inside, you see there's nobody there, and there hasn't been anybody there for many, many years, apparently. That's when it started getting weird. So, but as we came up on this house, then, we went up on the porch, and what struck me first was as I'm, as I'm looking through the window, all the furniture is in the house. And there was a TV sitting there, and on that TV was a picture couldn't really make it out, but I think it was like a high school picture, and it was done in sepia. Okay, so anyway, we, we didn't go in. We went around behind the back of the house, and there was an old shed there. Now, we went inside of it. Now, Daryl and I knew nothing about antiques. And we looked around, and this place was full of old tools. And I looked over, and there were the skeletons of those horses. That's laying there in this path area, like. That must be eerie. So then we were, I think we were standing there. I looked up, and this is a site that always stays fresh in my memory. You know what the Adams Family House looks like on TV? Yeah. It's got that square front part of it. They always show those types of homes in old movies, old scary movies. Old, uh, two or three stories, but the front of it's a square. We started walking over, here's another building, a round building. I remember it was around. And the first place we went was, what is this? The guy had told us, the old farmer told us, that back in the 20s, they used to have dances out on the island. And it might have been in that building, I don't know. Uh-huh. And uh, but they used to take them across, they had like a little raft, like they would, they had a cable, and they would take people out on that place, and they would go out there and have a party. Well, we went into this skating rink area in the building, and inside there was a, uh, I call it a surrey with a fringe on top, because that's what it looked like. It was a with a covered top on it, fringe 
with a crank type cash register. And for some reason, I remember a rack of garden seeds. And, you know, again, we're standing there going, what? This is really kind of weird. Uh-huh. We walked out of there, walked over to the house, and the house was, you know, there's no paint on it. It's just totally all weeds and vines and everything all over the place by it. And obviously uninhabited. We went inside and walked into the kitchen part. Dishes were in the kitchen. Huh. Uh, that's kind of crazy here. So went into the living room. There was furniture in the living room, but the only the only furniture I do remember is it was all wooden, and it was like a huge or a thick uh, layer of dust. Okay. But it just looked like it just it just sat there and nobody taking care of it. Well, we wandered around downstairs a little bit. So I told Daryl, I said, I'm going to go upstairs, but do, do not yell at me. This place is kind of odd, and I don't need to yell something at me. I'm going to go through the room here. So I started up the stairs, and the room, first room I went into, um, what struck me was it was a bed, and the bed had bed clothing on. And um, over in the corner was a dresser with one of these big round mirrors on it, and there was a device on there. I didn't know what it was, and I found out later it was a seamstress using to mark a hem on a dress. It was just sitting on the dresser and then I found a grade card from school on the floor and I think it was from the 40s or 50s I don't remember anymore okay and so it, it was just late and I'm going again I'm looking around going there's nobody in this house obviously and it hasn't been for a long time but one big clothes and things are still here so I went into what must have been the master bedroom and one of the things the first thing I saw was this huge trunk uh, by a bed I didn't want to open it because, I, first of all, I felt like I, I felt I always felt like I was intruding or trespassing while I was there. Sure. I didn't yeah. open it for a couple of reasons. Number one, I felt like it was not the right thing to do. Second, was I was not half afraid of what it might find in it. But over on the wall was a pair of coveralls just hanging there on a peg, and I pulled those back, and there was a huge swarm of bees, and it actually eaten through the side of the, the house. So it was oh. open. There was a hole there from from that. sounds like you it almost sounds like you stepped into a time capsule kind of where you know time no, stopped that's the best way to put it hmm. yeah i told Daryl, i said you know in some ways it's kind of like as we were going home it's almost like these people woke up one day and said i'm out of here and they just left it's just so odd that they left things why would you leave a bed why would you leave clothes hanging why would you leave all your dishes and why would you leave a television in this house the furniture and this uh, picture and a frame on a TV, it literally looked like people just walked away from the place. Mm-hmm. And so it was such a strange kind of an experience. When I got home, I thought, I have to write this down. Right. And, and I tell people this story over the years about it. And I said, even to this day, it was such a vivid experience. It's almost like I can still see everything. I can almost still see what the rooms look like. 
because it didn't fit my perception of what reality is. Right. It just was like you say, you stepped into a time warp that was took you someplace else, and uh, things just didn't match up. So much for revolutionary war relics and spirits of barbarous traders. David states that he found nothing of the sort, but instead claims to have come upon a sundry collection of odd items and structures that only heightened his curiosity. Another adventurous spirit, Miss Judy Zeiler, happened upon the island during a boating trip with her friends. Here's a small clip of her experience. And a friends of ours, Denise and Marnie, had their own little boat, and they went to the island all the time to like party. And one day he's like, come with us, we'll all go. Never been that far off. Because from um, the marina, Gary Thurston, to Napoleon is 13 miles. Gertie's Island is five miles past that. And once you get past Gertie's Island, if you're not from that area and don't know your way, there's big boulders under the water. And you kind of got to snake your way through. Uh So we didn't know nothing about anything up there. And I'll never forget it. Denise made the comment about maybe we'll see the ghost. And he's like, what ghost? And he told me that Southern Island got the name. Simon Gertie was a person that got captured by General Anthony Wayne. And at night he comes out at the west point of the island and you can see him working, polishing the cannons. That's what she told me. She would later return to the island with her husband and come upon the remnants of what had been, of all things, a summer resort with a fabled history all its own. I had the pleasure of interviewing Miss Mary Voigtkamp. At 91, she's the last surviving grandchild of Fred and Mary Voigt, who purchased the island in 1898 to operate a resort. She recalls childhood memories of family visits to the place as such. Go ahead, tell me a little bit about what you remember of the island from when you were a child. Oh, when I was a child, we would uh, go like on a Sunday to the island. All of us kids, there was nine of us kids. And we would, on the south side where the ferry would leave to go over to the island, there was kind of a, a nice beach. We would do our little splashing around but that's as far as we went on we uh, like on Sundays but a couple times we went over and stayed on the island for several days in the stone cottage and uh, I think I was about five we uh, stayed in the cottage and it's got a second floor was like a a bunk room bunk house and uh, the the beach is on the the uh, west end very nice natural beach. Well, they still had the ferry when I was a when we stayed on the island. They still had the ferry. The uh, the the one cable for the ferry, which was high, that kept it from wobbling, that was still there yet. There was a rope hanging from the cable on a pulley, and my brothers climb a tree and get a hold of that rope. And what do they call that? They do now zip line. Yeah, and go out and then drop off in the water. <laughs> I did have a near catastrophe when the uh, time the water was kind of low and I started to walk across the island, to the island and I got almost to the island when the bottom dropped out from under me. 
Gene pulled me out by my hair. <laughs> <laughs> No, but he was going to say, you're, you're going to learn swimming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you survived that. Yeah. <laughs> and we had the island until 1925, I think. It was uh, uh, only a resort from 1900 until 1906. After that, then they just had like uh, uh, ladies' clubs would come over for a picnic or Mm -hmm. uh, different things like that. Right. Uh, Uncle Will was the one that farmed the other end, the Down River end. He uh, plowed up a lot of Indian artifacts. Yeah, one half was used for the resort and the other half was used for farming. And after the 1913 flood, they built a dance hall and had a, a little bowling alley along the side. Another account of the island from its resort era is taken from the 1988 writings of Dorothy Voigt Rakestraw, the daughter of Fred and Mary Voigt. After heavy efforts to clear areas of dense vegetation, they constructed a cable-operated ferry large enough to hold a team of horses. They would later go on to construct a house, a pavilion for staging shows and drama, a dance floor, a bowling alley, a shooting gallery, a beach, a beer garden, a food stand, a baseball diamond, a grandstand, and a barn to host the horses. Five peacocks were purchased to add an extra element of beauty and exoticism to the place. They were known to fly across the river's banks, but somehow they always found their way home. For many years, the island suggested a dark history and conjured images of villainous traders with restless spirits haunting the place. For others, especially those like the Voigt family, the island stood for something quite different. It represented something unique in the flattened landscape of endless fields of grain. The Maumee itself, slicing through the homogenous land, stands out today. It offers a scenic reprieve from the monotony of the land around it. It bends and winds. It beckons waterfowl like eagles and cranes, rarely seen much beyond its banks. Perhaps the Voigts came to recognize the value this exceptional plot of land had to offer by way of recreation, diversion, and fresh summer breezes off the surface of the water. Before long, the resort was booming, so much so that a cargo boat named the Goldie was converted into a passenger vehicle. Steam power moved the 10-foot paddle wheel from the city of Napoleon, several miles upstream, to the shore of Gertie's Island. For 50 cents, a person could board the Goldie, which held about 100 passengers, and embark on a day of entertainment, recreation, and pleasure. The resort was in full operation from about 1900 to 1906. The expenses eventually would prove too great for the short three-month summer seasons, and the island would later be used for private parties and events until a devastating flood in 1913, which swept away everything except the house and the food stand. Fred Voigt then planted a fruit farm. He discovered that being surrounded by water, early frost did not destroy the blossoms. Produce of all sorts thrived, including peaches, grapes, cherries, you name it. Eventually, about 20 acres of land would be cleared for farming, and in the process, many arrowheads and other Native American relics were unearthed. Perhaps some of them had been traded by one of the Gertie brothers themselves. 
1976, the Port Lawrence Title and Trust Company sold Gertie's Island to the state of Ohio. Today, it stands as a nature preserve. It has returned to the wilderness state, which must have existed long before summer vacationers, long before exploring adventure seekers, and long before late 18th century renegades and their Native American counterparts. From the bank of the Maumee, the island sleeps, quiet and unimposing. Her shores are thick with brush that flank oaks, sycamores, and maples that burn bright with color every autumn. The river, though moving swiftly, makes no sound. The muddy waters collected from western farmlands slip alongside the shore of the island, dense with both vegetation and folklore. Perhaps it's fitting that the land return to the wilderness from which all these stories originated, a place shrouded in legendary secrecy of unexplained phantom lights and mythic historical figures, of fears of traitors among us and the hatred such fears lay bare. Erosion for an island standing amidst a river is inevitable and eventually complete. Someday the mighty Maumee will wash away the last remaining heap of soil that once stood as Gertie's Island. The sediment will meander slowly downward into the darkness before resting at the bed of Lake Erie. Perhaps bits will find their way toward rotting shipwrecks and make their final resting place among the relics of other legends. I hope you've enjoyed this inaugural episode of Ohio Folklore. Find us on Facebook, and if you have a legend that you'd like featured as one of the episodes, please let me know. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell others in your life who enjoy stories that speak to deeper, unanswered questions within us.